Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And I have some stuff in a blog that I started about two and a half years ago, and the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. In this episode, we're going to talk about another important milestone in early 2019 that helped to shape the NCAA and Power 5 thinking on how they were going to respond to external regulatory threats. And just on the heels of Judge Wilkins' ruling in the Austin case, that was on March 8th of 2019. And I've talked a lot about that decision. That was the predicate for the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling in June uh, of this year. And when that decision came out, it was viewed and pitched in the media really as another blow to the NCAA, despite the narrow ruling and the narrow injunction that Judge Wilkin crafted in that case. But the Austin ruling created a lot of buzz, and this also was the very beginning of the 2019 March Madness tournament. So you had the whole world focusing on college basketball. And then, just six days later, on March 14th of 2019, there was another important milestone in the perfect storm between 2019 and the present. And that was the introduction of a bill in the House of Representatives by North Carolina Congressman Mark Walker, a Republican, And he had a co-sponsor, a Democrat, Cedric Richmond from Louisiana, who is African-American. And so this bill from the very beginning had a bipartisan, biracial face, and, and that's important. And the purpose of the bill was to strip the NCAA of its nonprofit status unless it offered name, image, and likeness benefits to athletes. And just as Judge Wilkins' Austin decision generated a lot of publicity, so too did Walker's bill. And there may have been a a synergistic effect there between the Austin ruling and the beginning of March Madness and then Congressman Walker's bill. And I'm going to address the bill in detail, the substance of it here in just a little bit. But I want to talk about the context in which this arose, because that's important too. So you had some discussion at the state legislative level on whether to legislate in the area of name, image, and likeness. And in 2018, the state of Washington began drafting a bill in its legislature that was going to put some pressure on the NCAA to offer name, image, and likeness benefits. And that initiative in Washington coincided with the trial in the Austin suit. And then in early 2019, the California Assembly began talking in earnest about a potential piece of legislation that also regulated in the NIL area. And Nancy Skinner was the assembly member who was really the face of that initiative. But no legislation had been proposed and nothing really specific was on the table. And it's not clear the extent to which the Austin suit may have influenced some of this initial uh, state legislative movement towards name, image, and likeness. And on its face, the Austin case did not directly relate to name, image, and likeness, but it was important in the name, image, and likeness context because in that case, the NCAA was seeking absolute antitrust immunity, even though it flatly and repeatedly denied that's what it was doing, but it was seeking antitrust immunity. And it's relevant to name, image, and likeness because if the NCAA had achieved its objective in Austin and received an absolute antitrust immunity from any suits by athletes challenging NCAA compensation limits, that would have encompassed nil compensation limits. And although these limits are a subset of the overall amateurism-based limits that the NCAA places on athlete compensation, it would have been uh, protected 
those compensation limits, those name, image, and likeness compensation limits would have been protected by the antitrust immunity that the NCAA was seeking in Austin. So you had all this activity. You had these states looking at legislating in name, image, and likeness. You had the Austin decision. And then you had this Walker bill. And all three of those together, I think, really scared the heck out of the NCAA. And this Walker bill had some features that really had nothing to do with the substance of the bill that made it a threat to the way that the NCAA wanted to position itself in the broader athletes' rights debate. And as I've discussed in detail, that positioning was based on preserving the status quo. And the NCAA was going back to the well with all of its arguments about its commitment to amateurism and the collegiate model and the student athlete, and that any disruption in the business model that chipped away at any of those foundational principles was going to mean the end of college sports as we know it. And they were trying to pitch those traditional principles as consistent with American values, which is part of the public relations fraud that the NCAA has gotten away with. They have convinced the public through their relentless propaganda that if athletes received one penny above their athletic scholarship, then that would compromise and destroy the revered tradition of amateurism and the sacred principle of the student athlete and the sanctity of the collegiate model and the integrity of college sports writ large. All of this stuff that has been so effective, particularly with decision makers who want to buy into the tradition-based approach to the NCAA's business model. And Mark Walker's bill was a direct challenge to that narrative because the way that Walker was pitching his bill, he was saying, wait a minute, these compensation limits are, they're anti-freedom, they're anti-free markets, they're anti-capitalism, they're anti-economic liberty, and there's no rational justification for these limits if you frame them through true American values. And those are Republican themes. And that's an interesting play on this tension between how the NCAA wanted to pitch their business model and how Walker was viewing it. Because the NCAA was beginning its congressional campaign and it wanted Republicans in the Senate to be carrying its water and promoting its message based on this fraud that these compensation limits actually were pro-American when in fact they were absolutely un-American. And Walker came out and said that. And that was an important framing because that was the NCAA's worst nightmare. And Walker has a compelling background. He's a Baptist minister and he got into politics running under a theme of people, not politics. And he really tried to tap into a bipartisan view of American values. And that's how he framed his bill. So just some quick background on Walker. So Walker was elected in 2014 and began in the 2015 Congress. And he's from the 6th District in North Carolina, which when he ran was really a Republican district. And it had been carved out by the state of North Carolina in some partisan-based gerrymandering that uh, ultimately led to some litigation. So Walker had a pretty easy go of it as the Republican candidate in the 6th District. And that comprised, I think, eight rural counties, seven full counties, one partial county. And it had a rural flavor. And Walker's positioning at the political level in that district was well-received because it was an everyman approach. But heading into 2019, Walker's relationship to the 6th District was about to change because this litigation that challenged the state of North Carolina's maps resulted in a complete makeover of the 6th District. And it went from really a rural district to an urban district and flipped from Republican to Democrat. And Walker decided not to run for re-election in 2020 and instead began talking about his intentions to make a run for Richard Burr's Senate seat. When Burr was elected in 2016, re-elected, he said he was not going to run for re-election in 2022. So that North Carolina seat's going to be 
empty. And I think Walker has his eyes on that. But it was interesting that he put this issue on the table, this athlete's rights issue on the table, I think knowing that he wasn't going to be back in the house to see it through. And I'm going to talk in a little bit about some of the downsides of legislation that comes out of the House of Representatives. And that's relevant to this Gonzalez-Cleaver bill that has been bounced around in the House as well. So there's no question that Walker is an ambitious politician, and it's not clear precisely what his motives were in putting out this athlete's rights bill. But at least for public relations purposes, he painted a picture of a guy who just loved college sports and became a fan of college basketball when he moved to North Carolina in 1991, I think, or 92. And that was the heyday of the Duke-Michigan basketball rivalry. He became a Duke fan and he paid attention to the Fab Five. And looking at how he believed they were being exploited, he really started to form some thoughts and opinions on the relationship between the laborers and big-time college sports and the market beneficiaries, namely the NCAA. He used that narrative really as the launch pad for this bill in 2019. And as I'm going to discuss here in just a second, the bill, at least at the substantive level, had virtually no chance of passage. And, but that wasn't the narrative that the media was picking up on because after the bill was introduced, Walker and some people in the media and then some co-sponsors, he ultimately had eight co-sponsors, a total of nine people on this bill. And I'm going to talk about that as well because that's important because it threatened the NCAA's portrayal of, of the athletes' rights issues. But there were comments that, look, this bill's a slam dunk. It's simple. It uh, is going to put some pressure on the NCAA to do the right thing here. But ultimately, the bill never made it out of committee. And that's important because it really wasn't much of a threat to the NCAA's business model. But the uh, story gained a lot of, of media attention and Walker got a lot of media attention. If you're going to run for a Senate seat, you need to have a brand that is sellable really at the national level, not just at the state level. And in North Carolina particularly, which is a purple state now, if you're going to run for national office, you need to really be positioning yourself to have a brand that's going to survive scrutiny, not just at the state level, but at the national level. You have to believe that Walker having his eye on the Senate was uh, also thinking about that, but he got a lot of good coverage out of this. It'll be interesting to see as his campaign plays out here running up to 2022, the extent to which he's going to rely on his athletes' rights legislation and his commitment to athletes' rights, because as things have played out, his approach really turned out to be a winning approach from a positioning standpoint, and it ties into basic American values. And that's ultimately where this argument is landing now, particularly after the United States Supreme Court decision, unanimous decision in Austin and Brett Kavanaugh's concurring opinion. But let's just talk a little bit about the substance of the bill and what it tried to do and why it really wasn't a viable piece of legislation. And then talk about, despite those limitations, why the NCAA was so afraid of this bill. And that goes to elements of the bill and the way it was positioned that really had nothing to do with the legal or political viability of the bill. The bill itself is brief to the point of obscurity. It's only 55 words long. And it used a tactic that really wasn't new to external regulation of college sports. This notion of using tax law as a stick, more than a carrot, to force the NCAA and the big-time Power Five interests into behaving like the nonprofits they claim that they are. It really goes back a couple of decades. And in my episode 20 on the collegiate model, it was the second episode on the collegiate model, I talked about an initiative by the House Ways and Means Committee in 2006 that was directed to the NCAA, and it outright questioned the NCAA's entitlement to nonprofit status at all. And the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, a guy named Bill Thomas from California, I 
think he was a Republican. I think that the Republicans controlled the House in uh, 2006. But it was in October. He sent a letter to Miles Brand, and it had a series of questions that related to both how big-time college sports revenue was generated and then how it was spent. And what Thomas was saying is that the NCAA's primary revenue-generating products, football and men's basketball, were professional and commercial enterprises that had little to do with the NCAA or the institutional claims of uh, educational nonprofit exemption. And they hang their hat on the peg of education. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that too and how this Walker bill was structured because he went at it in a different way that didn't really, I think, capture how the NCAA was pitching its nonprofit status. But Thomas looked at both the revenue generation side and then the expenditure side. So one of the things that Miles Brand tried to do in his conceptualization of the collegiate model in 2008 and 2004, and then how he articulated it as a business model in 2006. And he did that at the January convention. That was a centennial convention of the NCAA. Brand just really put it on the table and said, look, we are in the business of big-time football and big-time men's basketball to generate as much revenue as we possibly can because we're taking that revenue and we're using it for, quote-unquote, participation opportunities downstream to non-revenue athletes and even some non-athletic academic interests. And those expenditures make the generation of that revenue entirely appropriate under nonprofit standards. And as I discussed in that episode 20, Miles Brand also tried to reconcile this tension by saying that amateur athletics in the higher education context were inherently educational. At the definitional level, he was saying that the education component and value of intercollegiate sports cannot be divorced from the way that the big-time college sports operates. They're one and the same. And that was a way, I think, to beat back some of this criticism that went to its tax-exempt status, which is based on education. But the important central purpose of Thomas's inquiry and the suggestion that the NCAA was operating outside of its nonprofit status was that it was claiming to be primarily an education-based nonprofit, but the sports enterprise that it had put together was really a professional commercial product. Thomas's letter created a lot of buzz, and let's see, I think he sent it out on October 5th of 2006. And then on October 30th of 2006, Miles Brand went to the National Press Club once again, his favorite venue for putting out NCAA propaganda. But in essence, he responded to Thomas's letter in that speech. And then a couple of weeks later, the NCAA sent a formal letter. And the primary argument that they made in response to the concerns raised in Thomas's letter, because one of the things Thomas was saying is that, look, you're taking this money and you're spending it on coaching salaries, on Taj Mahal facilities, and these bloated athletic administrative staffs. You're not spending it in a way that's consistent with your nonprofit mission. And Brand went back to his conceptualization of the collegiate model and said that on the output side, on the expenditure side, we're spending this money on downstream beneficiaries who can't pay for themselves. And by doing that, we're increasing participation opportunities. And I, I took that to task in that episode 20. So I would urge you to, to check that out. Because what Brand was really saying is that he was justifying the NCAA's nonprofit status on maximizing revenue in a labor market comprised primarily of African-American laborers, and then diverting that money to downstream beneficiaries who were overwhelmingly white and comparatively affluent. And that was okay. I don't think he was thinking about it that way. But that, in my judgment, that's the practical effect of his conceptualization of the business model through the collegiate model. But it didn't go anywhere. There wasn't any legislation passed in the Ways and Means Committee to try to strip the NCAA of its tax-exempt status. But what's important to remember about this 
challenge in 2006 is that the Ways and Means Committee was saying, you're too commercial, you're too professional. And if you're going to operate that way, then you should be paying taxes. Or alternatively, you can completely change your business model to reduce the professionalization and commercialization of the product. And then your argument that you're acting consistent with your educational nonprofit status would be a little more plausible. And that was an appealing argument on its face, but tax law is very complicated and it has its own body of law that the IRS is responsible for putting out when it issues rulings on a case-by-case basis. And what Thomas was proposing, what the House Ways and Means Committee was proposing in 2006, really wasn't that practical when you looked at it critically through the lens of tax law. And in 2010, a well-respected tax law professor at the University of Illinois, his name's John Colombo, wrote a law review article titled The NCAA Tax Exemption in College Athletics. And he uses this Thomas letter to Brand in 2006 really as a template for looking at all of these tax-related issues and whether tax laws are really the way to try to force the NCAA into meaningful and intelligent reform. And his bottom line is that a direct challenge to the NCAA's tax-exempt status as an educational nonprofit probably isn't going to be successful because they passed the blush test at that level. He does say that when you isolate football and men's basketball, you have obviously commercial professional products that don't pass muster under IRS nonprofit tax-exempt standards. But there's already a procedure in place, an existing tax law, to deal with that situation where you have an entity that's operating as a legitimate nonprofit, but has some portion of it that really is operating as a for-profit entity, and that's called the unrelated business income tax. And so the uh, nonprofit entity can be taxed on those components of its business model that really are for-profit. But Colombo goes on to say that as a practical matter, the way that accounting works and budgeting works in higher education and in the broader nonprofit world, these entities almost always zero out their budgets. And that's true even when you isolate the athletics budgets in the big time power five universities where the where the big money's rolling in. So you're probably not going to have anything to tax as a practical matter. And interestingly, Colombo indirectly, I think, refers to Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model. And in a rather lengthy footnote, he talks about Brand's justification for maximizing the revenue from big-time football and big-time men's basketball and says he's relying on how the money is spent. Uh, But Colombo says that as NCAA and its commercial partners are openly extolling the virtues of revenue maximization in football and men's basketball. That's something to keep an eye on because he says at some point that could cross the line over into a level of commercial behavior. Uh, That would be a problem for the NCAA under existing tax rules. And I'm going to talk about that Colombo article in more detail at some point and looking at some of the remedies that reformists might consider that really haven't been pursued in this most recent athletes' rights debate. But Colombo says that under existing IRS precedent, the IRS, not Congress, but without having to go back to Congress to to change tax laws, Colombo says under existing tax laws, the IRS could come in and place some conditions on the way that the NCAA is maximizing revenue in football and men's basketball to make it look or force it to look more like a nonprofit in those two areas. And he says that they could limit the way that the money is spent, that they could place caps on expenditures for facilities and things that don't directly go to their nonprofit mission and to these outrageous salaries for, for coaches, for athletics administrators, and other people who are benefiting in the system. So that's something that hasn't been on the table. And that is one way to bring some of the other components of reform that have been lost in the historical record. The Knight Commission was talking about this stuff in in 2010, and they cited to the Colombo Law Review article. But again, both the Colombo's article and the Knight Commission's work in 2010 was dedicated to pulling back on commercialism. And when you compare that fundamental framing of 
pulling the NCAA, dragging it into some rational relationship with its nonprofit status, you begin to see how Walker's bill really cuts in the opposite direction. And in my view, it's really counterintuitive. So what Walker's bill was going to do, it was going to take a provision of the IRS code that I'm not even sure applies to the NCAA. It applies to independent amateur athletic organizations. But he was going to amend the language in terms of what constituted a quote-unquote qualified amateur sports organization. And that is a term of art under the IRS code. It's not contained in 501c3, which has these broader categories, including education. It talks separately about amateur organizations and then goes down to an entirely different section to expand the, the, the definition there. But it's really not in the context of higher education. And the NCAA is hanging its hat on the educational nonprofit peg, not on this independent amateur organization peg. But what Walker's bill was going to do was to change the definition of a qualified amateur sports organization. And that's currently defined as any organization organized and operated exclusively to foster national or international amateur sports competition if such organization is also organized and operated primarily to conduct national or international competition in sports or to support or develop amateur athletes for national or international competition in sports. Now, that could arguably apply to the NCAA, but that's really not where the NCAA is looking in, in uh, defending its nonprofit status. So what Walker's bill was going to do, and I'm just going to read the only substantive provision, and again, it's only 55 words long. So that section I just read was 501J2. So here's what Walker says. Section 501J2 of the IRS Code of 1986 is amended by adding after the period at the end of the following. So this means at the very end of that definition that I just read. Such term, and that is the definition of the Qualified Amateur Sports Organization, such term does not include an organization that substantially restricts a student-athlete from using or being reasonably compensated for the third-party use of the name, image, or likeness of such student athlete. Now, there are all kinds of problems with this language. It is, again, as I said earlier, it's brief to the point of obscurity. And the substantive phrases that really are the core of this law are simply so vague that I don't think they're enforceable. So it says an organization that substantially restricts a student athlete from being reasonably compensated for the third party use. What does that mean? An organization substantially restricts, that really has no definable, enforceable meaning and reasonably compensated. That also is just language. It's begging to be challenged. <laughs> now, Walker's bill, because it's limited to third party use, it is not calling for the direct payment from universities to athletes. So this formulation of the relationship relationship between the athletes in the name, image, and likeness context and institutions is important because that really became the template for all of these name, image, and likeness bills. And that is a substantial limitation because it in large part defers to core components of the NCAA's business model, including the student athlete. Because if universities are prohibited from paying the athletes and they're protecting the concept of the student athlete, which is also imbued with the principle of amateurism and then the NCAA's conceptualization of the collegiate model as a substitute for amateurism. So this is an amateurism-friendly bill in, in many ways. It's just trying to carve out this name, image, and likeness issue as an independent issue. But this is not a game changer. <laughs> you know, it's not a, from a substantive standpoint. Not only is it not a game changer, it's going to be challenged by the NCAA. And I'm going to, in a second, read the statement that they released. But before I get to that, I just want to talk about how counterintuitive this law is. So instead of saying, look, NCAA, you're out of control here and you are engaging in obviously for-profit activities and you have no business benefiting from the protections of non-profit laws under the IRS code. So you should have that non-profit status stripped. Instead, what Walker is saying is that unless you engage in behavior and change your behavior in a way that makes you more professionalized and more commercialized, we're going to strip your non-profit status. That really doesn't make any sense to me. And I'm not quite sure that it was analyzed on those grounds. In fact, it, this bill got very little critical analysis on the substance of the bill itself. It just generated an enormous amount of press coverage. And some of that, I think, was that it was the first 
bill coming out of Congress that really jumped into the athletes' rights issue in, in this perfect storm. And again, you had the states considering action, but nothing had been passed yet. And the California bill didn't come uh, into existence and wasn't formally presented until September of 2019. So we're in March of 2019. But this bill didn't have a snowball's chance in hell of being passed because if it had been critically analyzed, if this bill makes it out of committee, and it didn't make it out of committee, this bill died in committee despite all of these proclamations that it was a no-brainer and it had bipartisan support and we're going to pass this thing. If it had been passed, and I don't think it was going to be in this form because there had to be some discussion about its enforceability and its feasibility, and this language is just uh, too broad. It doesn't pass the blush test from a legislative drafting standpoint. And it's not really in any context. There are no definitions. There's no acknowledgement of who the interested parties are. This thing just didn't have legs. And if it were to be passed in a format like this, the NCAA is going to come in and, and challenge it on a number of grounds. One is that it's essentially void for vagueness. That's usually used in the context of criminal laws. But the same logic would apply here because this is just unenforceable language. But more importantly, I think what they might say is this bill misses the boat. We're not claiming nonprofit status as this qualified amateur sports organization. We're going back to 501c3 which deals with education-related nonprofits and charitable nonprofits. And that's about as broad a category as you can find under these exceptions to tax responsibility in the IRS code. And when you look at how the NCAA responded to this, I think that's what they were saying without coming out and inviting further scrutiny of the bill. But it says, this bill is unnecessary and may benefit only a small number of student athletes and cause unintended consequences and negatively impact opportunities for all other college athletes. This is a critical step to keep in mind because the NCAA offers a unique model that creates opportunities for academic and athletic achievement to nearly 500 student athletes across 24 sports each year. That's all just usual NCAA propaganda. And they're trying to hide in the amateur forest with all these products that really have no business being in the NCAA with the Power Five products. But that's pretty much what uh, they're saying here. So it's one big happy family. And this is an amateurism family and it is an education family. And let's see, it then goes on to say the NCAA is a 501c3 tax-exempt organization that supports other exempt organizations by providing almost a billion dollars annually to the higher education community through payments and programming. As such, NCAA member-made rules are essential to preserving college sports in the United States, which are separate and distinct from professional sports. So all that goes right back to what uh, Thomas was talking about in 2006, how Brand tried to conceptualize around the professional product by folding it into the educational purpose and that on the expenditure side, all this money was going to expenditures that were consistent with the nonprofit mission of the institution and of higher education more broadly. And this also goes to the way that Colombo was structuring the arguments and looking at whether a direct challenge to the NCAA's tax-exempt status would be successful. So I think the NCAA was trying to point out in a subtle way, look, you're barking up the wrong tree here. But by the same token, I don't think the NCAA wanted a discussion on the potential use of existing tax law to, to force it to change its behavior, to be on the table. And I think that's one of the reasons it responded aggressively. But again, given these limitations, you have to ask yourself, why did the NCAA react the way that it did? Because almost immediately after this bill was introduced by Walker and Richmond, the NCAA National Office dispatched its lieutenants, and they included Donald Remy, who was the chief legal counsel. He's no longer with the NCAA, but he really carried a laboring oar in formulating the NCAA strategy and managing external regulatory threats, including its litigation strategy in Congress, and then I think to a lesser extent on its uh, public relations strategy. But Remy and three other NCAA high-ranking national office folks kind of march into Walker's office and say, basically, what the hell are you doing here? What are you trying to accomplish here? And Walker talks about that, and he was surprised 
by the immediate pushback. And then he also made some comments to the effect that he was really taken aback at how powerful the NCAA is and how powerful its propaganda machine was because they immediately came out and started smearing this bill as pay for play. And Mark Emmert started putting out comments and he went on a charm offensive in the Senate. And that really irked Walker as well because Walker was trying to get an audience with Emmert and Emmert basically told him, up yours. And then uh, Emmert waltzes into the Senate at a time when the Senate claimed to be thinking about name, image, and likeness compensation for athletes as a bipartisan issue. And Emmert meets with uh, Mitt Romney, a Republican, and Chris Murphy, a Democrat. And Murphy's been very critical of the NCAA. But there was a news article on that, and Walker was really ticked off about that and, and basically said, look, if this is where Congress is coming from, if their first meeting is with the guy who's most responsible for preventing name, image, likeness compensation rather than the revenue producing athletes who make Mark Emmert's $4 million salary possible, then we've got a problem from the very beginning. And that was an excellent point. Walker made some great points in support of this bill, a bill that had no chance. (laughs) But I think the reason, one of the reasons that Walker's bill was such a threat to the NCAA and that they were so aggressive in questioning his motives and questioning what he was trying to do and then pivoting right to the Senate where the NCAA, I think, was beginning to think about using Republican senators to promote its status quo interests. And Walker's messaging was a problem (laughs) because... He wasn't being a team player. If you're a Republican, in the way that the NCAA was seeing the world in the spring of 2019, you're supposed to be on board with their defense of the status quo, defending these compensation limits, not challenging them. And Walker's framing of the issues was really powerful because he was combining this exploitation theory with fundamental American values. And that is the right way to frame it. It's the honest way to frame it. And it is a really powerful way to frame it. And that scared the hell out of the NCAA. So that's why I think this bill really started to cause some problems for the NCAA. And I think it was an important inflection point in how the NCAA started to think about external regulatory threats. And they did not want the first salvo coming out of Congress being one from a Republican legislator who was directly challenging the NCAA's business model, but also its fundamental principles and challenging them under American values. (laughs) That's not where the NCAA wanted to be. But there were some other important features of this bill that were also a real problem for the NCAA. And I want to point those out because I think they're relevant in terms of how the NCAA may now be thinking about reframing their issues when they go back to the Senate here after the August break. And the way that they have responded to, for example, the Gonzalez-Cleaver bill in the House, it's really the only bill that's come out of the House that's had any staying power. And um, I'm going to talk about the staying power problem in the House because of the turnover in the House. But it's interesting to see, compare how the NCAA responded to this bipartisan, biracial bill in 2019 that was adverse to its interests versus how it was pitching the Gonzalez-Cleaver bill, which was bipartisan and biracial in 2020-2021. And those two bills have a lot in common, but the NCAA's response to them was diametrically opposed. So I just realized I'm not even sure I told you the name of this bill. Walker's bill is titled the Student Athlete Equity Act, and that has a nice ring. All these bills, the ones that have come out of the Senate that are NCAA friendly, have these Orwellian kind of titles that are directly inconsistent with the substance of the bill. Although at least Walker's bill, the substance of it is theoretically consistent with promoting athlete interests. But anyway, so let's look at who the co-sponsors were, where they came from, and why this was such a problem for the NCAA. And uh, you had a total of nine people who backed this bill. You had Walker and Richmond originally. And Walker is from North Carolina. Richmond is from Louisiana. Then you had seven other co-sponsors. You had John Ratcliffe, a Republican from Texas, John Warmoth, a Democrat from Kentucky, Matt Getz, a Republican from Florida, Alcee Hastings, a Democrat from Florida, Colin Allred, a Democrat from Texas, 
Daniel Meiser, a Republican from Pennsylvania, and Pete Aguilar, a Democrat from California. So what do you notice about that list? Every single person, every single congressman supporting this bill came from a Power Five state, and that is so, so important. And three of the nine sponsors of this bill, I'm just going to refer to them as as sponsors, three of the nine are African-American. That is a problem for the NCAA. And five of them are Democrats, four are Republican. That's a problem for the NCAA. The only weakness in this bill from a kind of a political presentation standpoint is that it doesn't have any women. And when you compare the look of this bill, the the demographic look of the people supporting this bill to the demographic look of the people who originally supported the Gonzalez-Cleaver bill, which the NCAA says is the best thing since sliced bread. The only difference is that the Gonzalez-Cleaver bill had at least one woman, Marsha Fudge, who's African-American, no longer in the House because she accepted a position in the Biden administration. But from a diversity standpoint, a bipartisanship standpoint, and and all that, these two presentations are very, very similar. And so you didn't hear the NCAA in response to this Walker bill talking about how great it was because it had bipartisan support and it was a consensus-building bill and all that stuff. They just went after Mark Walker and this bill. So just to put a little finer point on the power of these big time interests through the Power Five, you've got seven Power Five states here, including three of the most populous states in the United States. You've got California, Texas, and Florida in that order, the three most populous states, 90 million people in those three states combined. I think California recently passed uh, Great Britain as the fifth largest economy in the world. Something like that. I could be wrong about that. But look, you're talking about some heavy hitting power players, not just in the big time college sports marketplace, but in the stream of commerce. So these are incredible markets here. Some of the most lucrative markets in the world for sports programming writ large. But within these seven power five states, you've got 21 power five schools, 21. There are 65 power five schools. So almost a third of the Power Five schools reside in one of these seven states. And that creates really a level of power in the messaging of this bill that you just can't ignore, regardless of the substance of the bill. And then from a population standpoint, looking at these seven states combined, you've got 122 million people. That's 37, 38% of the U.S. population. You're pushing 40% of the U.S. population here. But the NCAA, they wanted to to get ahead of this thing and to snuff this out because it was uh, bad news uh, on these multiple levels. And one of the things that I think is unfortunate here, because the athletes' rights movement was so disorganized, it really didn't have the support, the organized support of an infrastructure that was going to keep this narrative alive. And as we're going to discuss as we go through the uh, rest of the milestones in 2019, the NCAA was very effective at changing the narrative and Walker talks about that. He talks about the NCAA as a propagandist in some of these news articles that came out after he introduced the bill. He really got the treatment from the NCAA, and I think it was eye-opening for him. And the aggressiveness and the swiftness with which the NCAA dispatched its army of propagandists to beat down the message of this Walker bill and the framing of the bill, I think, was just really a shock to Walker, and I don't think his comments on that were politically motivated. I think he just, on the backside of it, he thought, oh my gosh, these guys, they're wielding some serious power, and it's power that's invisible to the public, and it's the power that, that is operating in a way that is directly at odds with the values it claims to hold for public relations purposes. And in a prior episode, I can't remember, I think it was the Current Events Chaos, I led in to that episode with some clips of Marsha Blackburn going after Mark Emmert at that February 11th, 2020 hearing. She has seen the real NCAA and she's not buying the BS. Mark Walker's seen the real NCAA. And once you have seen it up close and personal, you cannot unsee it. 
And I think Walker came into this legislation, this piece of legislation, thinking he was doing the right things by his principles and for these athletes. And on the backside of it, he got a peek into the underbelly of the business of big time college sports. And wow, I think it really changed the way that he was thinking and speaking about the NCAA's interest and the status quo interest. But it's that reality that the NCAA is so invested in protecting from public scrutiny and public visibility. And that's why they are chiefly propagandists. And they're very, very good at that. What's happening with the Board of Governors right now and at the NCAA National Office and through Mark Emmert's remaking his image is pure propaganda. And it's so good because the NCAA has been doing it for so long and they have built in systems to get their message out in a way that not only promotes their message, but drowns out other messages. And then they won't hesitate to just take out a critic at the most personal level if that is necessary to preserve their business model. And when those four members of the NCAA National Office came calling on Mark Walker after that bill was released, they weren't coming to thank him for furthering the discussion on athletes' rights and doing right by all of these athletes. They came in with the message. Sure, it was polite and, and professional. I don't think they were screaming and yelling. But their message was, we're just going to take you out, buddy. We are going to destroy you. And I don't know if they accomplished that goal because Walker was leaving anyway. And the bill, again, substantively wasn't much of a threat to the NCAA. But that was how they were handling it from a public relations standpoint. And one of the reasons that I think this Walker bill is so important in looking at the initial milestones in this period of 2019 to the present is that I think it lit a fire under the NCAA's ass. And they're thinking, wait a minute, this thing <laughs> gained traction. And we had to come in and try to snuff this thing out. But this narrative could grow legs if the athletes' rights movement becomes more organized and you have some real and powerful and sustainable interaction between these external athletes' rights advocates and then the levers of power at the legislative level. And then, of course, you have what's going on in the litigation arena as well. But if you have that kind of coordination and then you start to have some uh, traction here with an equity-based, civil rights-based, social justice-based, bipartisan, biracial coalition, you need to deal with that. And I think that really started to crystallize the NCAA's thinking. And remember, it was just two months later on May 14th of 2019, that the NCAA announced the formation of the Board of Governors Federal and State Legislation Working Group. And in my judgment, the initial purpose of that working group had zero to do with trying to come up with any intelligent rules changes that would facilitate name, image, and likeness compensation. It was a vehicle through which the NCAA could change the narrative buy some time, and then begin launching this aggressive campaign in the Senate. And this is really, I think, part of this process where the NCAA stops acting defensively in response to external regulatory threats, and it puts together a comprehensive, audacious campaign to go on offense and just nip all this stuff in the bud in one fell swoop. And you never really know what these discussions are behind the scenes. We're probably never going to know what the NCAA was saying, what the Power Five was saying, what their lobbyists were saying. But the evidence suggests, based on this timeline, that the NCAA saw the Walker Bill as a real threat and for reasons that had little to do with the legislative threat that it posed. But it was a messaging threat. And it was a coalition building threat. And I think it was in this time frame between the introduction of the Walker Bill in March of 2019 and then the uh, announcement of the formation of this working group in May of 2019 that the NCAA started to think about presenting for public relations purposes the suggestion that they were open to considering voluntary rules changes on name, image, and likeness. But again, that was just another NCAA propaganda ruse because while they were saying that to the public, and that will all play out through the rest of 2019, while they were saying that to the public, behind the scenes, they were putting together an aggressive lobbying campaign and they were trying to get a head start. And that dovetailed with all of these discussions about the California law. And they were preparing to take 
the throne. They were preparing their Iron Throne campaign to eliminate every external regulatory threat that could interfere in any way with their business model and their revenue streams in their corrupt national office. That was that's what this is all about. And in the next episode, or the next episode in this series, I'm not, I may be talking about something else in the next episode. But in the next episode of this series, I am going to talk about the initial contours of that Board of Governors working group and look at exactly what its charge was, but more importantly, how it framed the issues. And this is so, so important. And this goes to Condoleezza Rice's point about using the collegiate model in the context of name, image, and likeness benefits, because you can't have meaningful compensation when that compensation is framed around guardrails that are specifically designed to prohibit compensation. (laughs) And that's exactly what happened the way that the NCAA framed this issue. Issue. And the other thing that's important about this initial framing, and we'll talk more about this when we get to this episode, but the limitations that the NCAA initially put on the debate, the restrictions on the debate, and the terms of the debate carried through discussions that went far beyond NCAA voluntary rules making and influenced decisions in state legislatures and in independent groups that were looking at name, image, and likeness. And that is the power of the NCAA. And so when I said on the backside of some of these transformative events in 2021, that the NCAA is still a powerful force because despite its position of weakness right now, and it is in a position of weakness as an organization, the principles that it has been selling all along have been brought into the thinking of the key decision makers, including state legislatures and I think U.S. senators. And we still don't know how that's going to play out. But the NCAA, yeah, they may be losing in terms of the power of their institution and the public perception of them as an organization, but they're winning to the extent that their principles were bought into almost from the very beginning of this name, image, and likeness discussion and have been incorporated into state law. And now they may get some of those principles incorporated into federal law. And that is breathtaking power. And I think that is what Mark Walker was talking about on the backside of the introduction of this bill when he just said, holy moly. I mean, these people are powerful and they come at you with everything they've got and they still have power. Do not underestimate the NCAA's power. So in the context of this working group, we're going to look at how effectively they wielded that power. And they were strutting around like the peacock. They were still on the top of the hill and it was just a matter of time, just a few months. They were going to get everything they wanted and then they could just brush their hands and say, all right, on to the next big time contract. (laughs) to the next multi-billion dollar bonanza for the NCAA and the Power Five. So with that, I'm going to close this episode out. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.